Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today is our last main episode for the season. We will go on a short hiatus until February, so as to give us some time to plan our next season coming out. In the spring, we will be taking a deep dive into Catholic moral teaching. So you can get ready for us to uh, rustle some feathers and to make everyone mad on every end of the spectrum. That's what we're here for. Well, today, as I said, we're concluding this season's look at Anglo-Catholic piety and devotion, and we wanted to bring our discussion to a close by looking at Holy Scripture. And this is a topic that we have previously discussed before on the podcast. Hopefully you'll recall that Dr. Hans Borsma, friend of the podcast, talked to us about pre-modern exegesis. I guess it's been about a year ago. I would encourage you all, if you haven't listened to that episode, to go and listen to that interview with Dr. Borsma. What a fantastic job he does. Uh, also, hopefully you've listened to our most recent episode with Jared Henderson, host of the Matins podcast. He talked to us about the importance of reading in St. Augustine's Confessions, which was very related to this topic. And then to circle back around to Dr. Borsma, actually our final episode for this season, bonus episode, which will be released next week, is yet another interview with Dr. Borsma to supplement this one, and it's on the topic of Lectio Divina. And so today we want to primarily focus on the scriptures in our devotional lives. So to structure our conversation, as we have kind of been doing this season, we want to give some history, some theology, some background before we get to devotion. So we think it'll be helpful for us to see what scripture says about itself. How does the scripture interpret its own use and function within the life of the believer in the church? Second, how is the scripture understood by the church in her history, in her liturgy, so on? And then finally, we'll look at how can we incorporate scripture into our own lives. So let's begin by looking at what scripture says about itself. Father Wes? Yeah, I think a good place to start uh, to answer that question, and there are a lot of places we could start, but I think the best place to start is Psalm 1. Uh, you have these beautiful first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. So the way that the psalmist begins his beautiful collection of poetry is to cast scripture as an encounter with God's wisdom, which I think has an explicitly Christological connection if we understand wisdom in light of something like Proverbs 8 or the rest of the Christian tradition. By meditating on scripture, then, we become like a tree that yields its fruit. And that imagery there in Psalm 1 is Edenic, right? It's going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Um, wisdom heals us. It restores us back into that kind of idyllic place that we were created in. And obviously these are kind of spiritual metaphors. And so we often think as Anglo-Catholics about where does our nourishment and our feeding in the spiritual life come from? And we obviously point towards the Eucharist because you actually eat and are nourished in that sacrament. 
But the scriptures are presented as also this great source of nourishment, strength, and growth in order for you to bear uh, the fruit necessary for a life devoted to God Almighty. And I think that's because, as you just said, it goes back to the same source, and that is Christ. Christ is that sustenance that we need in our lives as we are conformed to him, deified in him. And the scriptures are a divine means and tools for that. I would even go so far as to say scripture properly used is is this means of grace coming to us and forming us and shaping us. And we'll talk about the most proper context in which scripture is understood, digested, and presented. But scripture itself, as you're seeing, understands itself as this tool for divine life and nourishment. It's interesting to me, if you read uh, Origen's book, Parapasca, where he goes through the Exodus narrative, when it comes to the lamb that was slaughtered for the Passover, he interprets that as Christ, but not in a Eucharistic way which I think is, I think you can read that Eucharistically and should read that Eucharistically, but he, he interprets it to be about Scripture. So the instruction about uh, they're not to boil it in water, he says boiling it would be like interpreting Scripture the way that the Jews interpret Scripture, whereas roasting it in the fire is like the Holy Spirit illumining Scripture for us and it coming to, to a different kind of light. And I think it's a really cool. Um, I think it's a really cool reading of that. So Parapaska is definitely something worth checking out um, to to find out what Origen believed about Scripture. I think it's it's very important. Another Psalm that might be helpful is one that we're probably all familiar with. Psalm one nineteen one o five. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I think that pairs well with a New Testament verse, Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God-inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because of the scripture's relationship to wisdom, it acts as a guide for us, helping us to reach our destination through a kind of enlightenment. These passages, passages remind us that scripture has a divine author in addition to its various human authors. And the important thing I think is that we avoid one at the that we don't avoid one at the expense of the other. That we don't lap into lapse into a kind of biblical Arianism, which sees the scripture only as a product of human authors, which is unfortunately a post enlightenment tendency that's present in much of the academy. But it's also important that we avoid a kind of biblical docetism, that is the assumption that scripture just sort of fell from the sky and that the human authors were really just kind of robots and and means to the end. And we have to remember, it goes back to, to a more fundamental distinction, I think, which is that God isn't a being within space and time. And so divine and human agency don't aren't in competition with each other. So we can fully affirm the sort of full human authorship of the text and the full divine authorship of the text, and that's okay. And th this is why when we talk about the four... Uh, the four senses of scripture, which we'll talk about later in this episode, and then we'll talk about more with Dr. Borsma, you know, it begins with the literal. It begins with understanding what the human author has put on the page for us. Um, and then we go from there into deep, kind of further up and further in ways of reading the text. Most fundamentally, though, I think it's important for us to remember that the scriptures are about Christ. So you can think of what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
and the road to Emmaus. He does a similar thing with his disciples where they're walking together, and Jesus says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And once he breaks bread with them, they seem to understand it. So there is an explicit Eucharistic connection to the scriptures there. And we see this happen in, in other parts of the New Testament. It's not just Jesus saying it about himself. We see in some of the earlier Christian readings of the New Test of the Old Testament that they are seeing Christ in the text. So you can think about what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers, speaking about the Israelites, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. That's got to be one of the most interesting New Testament passages when you're thinking about how do we approach the Old Testament because Paul just went full on Jesus is not just under every rock and tree, but he literally is the rock and the tree. Like it's all about Jesus. And that's a very New Testament, patristic, medieval exegesis. It's like you said, it's kind of a post-enlightenment approach to scripture that begins to make this separation between academic study and devotional study with, okay, if you want to go off into your prayer closet and think about Jesus being the rock in the wilderness, that's fine. But in the academy, we can't talk that way. Thankfully, through people like Dr. Hans Borsma and others, uh, it's being revived a patristic exegesis to the academy. Yes, absolutely. I'm reminded uh, in that verse of, uh, of, an, of a common objection that I heard when I was being trained at Liberty in seminary, which was that, well, it was okay for Paul to read the text that way, but it's not okay for us to read the text that way. Which I always thought was interesting, but, you know, it goes back, to, I think, to an ecclesiology, right? As, as a bishop in the church, Paul could read that way, and he's also setting an example for how us as members of that same church should approach the text. So it was very much seeing the text as Christocentric, seeing the subject of, of all scripture as, as Christ. And this is also, by the way, why the Psalms were the church's first prayer book, Right. It's why the Book of Common Prayer has us in the Psalms every day, twice a day, why the Breviary and Liturgy of the Hours has us in them so much, and also why we say the Gloria Patri when we're done with them, right? We don't just add that because it's a nice, pretty thing to say. It is a nice, pretty thing to say, but that's not the only reason why we say it after the, after the Psalm. We say it after the Psalm to remind us that what we have just heard is Christological and it's Trinitarian, and so we ought to read it in that light. Yeah, I think that is an incredible tool that the, the church has given to us to add that just little piece of liturgical praise to the end of every psalm. It, it takes the psalms of the Old Covenant and, if you will, just kind of brings them into and invites you to reapply them within the New Covenant. So, I, And I think that kind of segues well into a conversation about how has Scripture been understood in church history, especially in terms of devotion and the role it plays. Well, obviously, that's a very large topic, and we don't have kind of hours and hours to discuss a theology of Scripture within uh, church history. But kind of basically speaking, I think that we could say there's, there's four things we can say. 
Uh, the first is what we've been mentioning is that the, the ancient church, and even to this day, stands firm that the scriptures, all of scriptures, are Christological in nature, and that that is the the goal and the source of scripture, as we've as we've just said. And so, part of our devotional reading of scripture is an invitation to look for Jesus and to understand how Jesus. Uh, fulfills and participates in all the many metaphors of the Old Testament and even into the New, uh, and how he then fulfills all of human history. I think also we find that while Scripture is something that is given for personal reflection and personal digestion, right, we have these examples throughout history of monks and individuals and priests just meditating and poring over Scriptures for hours and hours. We have to know that primarily the scriptures are a liturgical text. And this is because most Christians have not been able to read. The idea of having a private Bible for private devotion is a fairly recent phenomenon with the rise in literacy rates. And the prices of bookmaking and binding have drastically dropped in the past couple centuries. And so where was the main place that someone heard scripture, and was able to meditate on it. It was at the Mass. It was during the Divine Liturgy, if you're Eastern. And this is why, if you participate in one of these ancient forms of the Mass, like if you go back to our episode and listen to the one about the Missal Mass, or if you ever go to a Missal Mass in either a an Anglican church or maybe an old Tridentine mass in the Roman church, if you know Latin, you'll just see that there's all these little lines and bits of scripture punctuated throughout because they're trying to bring the senses of scripture, meaning its full meaning, its full context to bear on the people as they're gathered to worship. And so what that does is, is that gives you an interpretive framework as someone sitting in the pew or standing, because pews are a later edition, to understand that scripture as this history, as this narrative, as this theological text has its touchstone in my life during the Mass, that the Eucharist is this place where Scripture comes alive and that the story of God is intermingled with my story. And so that's the devotional use of Scripture, is to use it and to pray it and to apply it to liturgy. In our personal lives, I think then as we're reading Scripture, we should be looking for sacramental and liturgical applications and interpretations. And that shift has really, I think, embodied a number of issues in modern Christianity, right? So when you are in the Mass as a parishioner, hearing the Scriptures read, hearing them interpreted, um, and then seeing them within the context of the Mass itself, you're having an encounter with the Scripture, when you do a private devotion for 15 minutes in the morning where you do a Bible study that's conditioned by kind of post-enlightenment methods, you know, yes, it's not to say that everyone who does that isn't having some kind of encounter, but, but it is a fundamentally different kind of encounter. You know, this is, it's almost like, this is an intellectual exercise that I'm doing where I get up and I, I you know, do this quiet time for 10 minutes or something. Um, but the Mass is a much more holistic experience. And it also is a more communal experience. 
So while it is very, I find it to be very personal and, you know, this intimate moment with me and my Savior during the Mass, it's also all of us are encountering these scriptures and they are coming, the Lord is using them to bring things to bear in our souls and minds collectively. And that is not just for your local parish, but whoever is following your same lectionary, the church universal type idea. And so I I would argue that that is the most proper place when we look at church history, that scripture is used, applied, and devotionally approached, is in the worship of the church. And that's when you go back early, early to to the apostolic church fathers, those that first generation, just after the apostles. That seems to be where the scriptures are beginning to take shape and form in the liturgy. And when they get to the point where the church is debating in the 300s, the canon of scripture, what are the books that are in and out? It's an appeal to the liturgy. Well, this has been read in the mass for 300 years. So this one counts. This one's in. That's kind of our theological basis. So church history, Christological approach to scripture. There is a personal and devotional use to be able to apply it to one's own life. Won't spend as much time on that because I think that's a given today in our kind of individualist culture. Then the liturgical, sacramental approach to Scripture. And then finally, uh, just to mention again, the church gives us this fourfold interpretation of Scripture as how we navigate any given passage. Yeah, so the fourfold steps begin with the literal reading of the scriptures so you understand what the words are on the page what they mean how they're working together i think in a sort of post um enlightenment world we might start to ask questions about authorial intention and um you know historical context but these are these are not necessarily the same questions that the medievals and ancient christians would have been asking when they meant literal um but we can probably incorporate those uh, into the literal now. Um, so you start with the literal, and then once you understand what the text means on a literal level, you can move into the allegorical, which is basically where you begin to see uh, a, a spiritual reality overlaid onto, the, onto what's going on in the text. So um, this is where you might read the story of Joseph and start to see how Joseph is a type of Jesus. Um, and then once you, once you've read it in that context, you can move into the tropological, which is a kind of moral reading. What moral instruction is this text offering us? And then finally, uh, you get into the anagogical step, which is sort of an eschatological reading or a reading that is related to the beatific vision. And so you, you go through each of these steps. Some of the medieval writers like to call this a, a building, all of them working together. So the literal is kind of the foundation of the building. The allegorical is the structure of the building. And then the tropological and the anagogical function as a kind of, uh, kind of decoration for the building, the, the, ornate, uh, the ornate additions you know, that make it, make it beautiful. Um, so this is something we'll talk with Dr. Borsma more about in the next episode, but um, that's what we mean when we talk about the fourfold interpretation. And so one of the, I think, key things that might be difficult for us as moderns when we first hear the fourfold interpretation and kind of in conjunction with personal, I think there are two, two things. The first is that if the fourfold interpretation is a valid way to interpret the text, there is no singular meaning in the text. And that can be kind of a big, you know, 
So, so for example, one thing I heard being trained at a place like Liberty was there's only one meaning of the text, but it might have different applications. So greet each other with a holy kiss, as Paul says. We obviously apply that differently than we do um, now, you know, than, than he did in his day. Um, but if the fourfold interpretation is valid, then that means that there are, there are different meanings in the same text. Um, at different levels and in different senses. And then the personal aspect, I think, too, makes this even more complicated, right? Uh, Father Miles, you and I have different life experiences. We have different predispositions. We have different proclivities. Um, when we sit down and read the same text, different things will stand out to us. And that's not to say you need to see the text my way, and it's not to say I need to see the text your way. Now, there are things that we need to kind of agree upon on first principles, right? We need to be reading the creed, the scriptures through the lens of the creed, things like that. But the Holy Spirit might speak to you in the scriptures in a different way than he would speak to me. He might speak to me in a different way now if I read the same text than when I read that text 10 years ago. And so meaning really then, I think for the early church, and, and I think you see this in some kind of modern, um, modern philosophies, uh, like Gadamer would be an example, I think, of this, that, that meaning is not locked away in the text for us to unearth through some kind of archaeological exercise, but that meaning in the text comes from an encounter with it that we have. And so, uh, yes, there's meaning in the text, but that meaning can, it's, it's like a gem, you know, you hold it up in the light and it refracts differently. Yeah, there's, there's different layers of meaning is probably a good way to, to think about it. There's meanings upon meanings and that, like you said, if you see something in the text that the Spirit's applying to your life, that doesn't mean that it's wrong if I don't see it or right because you see it. But this is also, again, why we need community to kind of bring a communal interpretation to the text. That's how it's most devotionally, I think, appropriated and used. And I... I think it also helps us get past the question of authorial intent. I think it's always good to begin with like a text and say, what did Moses mean and what would have been understood by Israel when they heard this? Well, we see in that passage you just quoted from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is okay to give meaning to the text about this rock in the wilderness. And if we're being fair... That's not even a passage that is ex super explicit in the Old Testament. There's this rock that water comes from, but he's really relying on Jewish tradition that the rock followed Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness to continue providing water. But even still, he reads, as some would say, a meaning into the text, but instead he is discovering the fuller meaning. Did Moses know that that rock was a type of Christ, or as Paul says, Christ himself? No, and it doesn't matter. And I think that's where the devotional approach to Scripture hinges upon one principle, that the author of Scripture is God Almighty. And as you said earlier, that doesn't negate human authorship. I think it highlights human authorship. I think that it en enlightens it, that it gives it a fuller, beautiful meaning. But it does mean that God's the author. And there can be meaning tucked away in Scripture that was not noticeable or even intended by any human author. In fact, I would say we have to assume that. One thing Dr. Borsma will talk about, and I don't know 
I don't know if he's talked about this in our last interview with him or if he'll talk about this in next week's, but, but the cover of his book, Scripture is Real Presence, has a very interesting piece of art. And the piece of art is Moses at the burning bush, but the burning bush is shaped like a chalice, and in the burning bush is our Lord. And Borsma would read that painting to say that Jesus is the archetype of the types. So it's not that the types point forward to Jesus, but that they are participating in an already existent reality. So Jesus and the cross precede the scriptures theologically. So Joseph is not uh, pointing forward to Christ so much as he is participating in Christ. That the events of Joseph's life have been sovereignly orchestrated that the pattern of Christ might be presented temporally beforehand, but actually in the moment participating in the eternal sacrifice, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so we have to get in our mind what's logically first. And it's Christ, Calvary, you know, the, whole, the whole nine yards is logically, theologically prior to anything that happens in Scripture. And so that gives us the freedom to see Jesus under every rock and tree because he's the rock and tree to which these rocks and trees are participating and pointing and attempting to give witness to. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's that's how the history of the church up until, you know, you get close to uh, modernity, the Enlightenment, Scripture is kind of universally accepted, understood. There are debates. You have various people who approach it different ways, but this is very common, and this is the assumption of the historic liturgies. This is why certain passages of Scripture are assigned during certain seasons. Uh, a good one is the first Sunday of Advent, which is coming up soon. The gospel lesson will be the triumphal entry. Well, why is the triumphal entry for the first Sunday of Advent? Why isn't it Palm Sunday? It is on Palm Sunday as well. It's because in the triumphal entry, we see an allegory of the coming judgment of Christ. He comes, he's riding on his, you know, animal. It'll be a horse. Then it was a donkey. He comes in, they sing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. What does he do? He goes to the temple and he purges it. He flips over tables. Well, that's an allegory for judge for the final judgment. If you don't have that historic interpretive framework of the church, you're left scratching your head going, why didn't he choose a text about the final judgment or something? And the church is saying, ah, we did. You just have to see it with the right lens. So now let's move into the third topic we want to talk about today, and that is incorporating Scripture into our lives. If I had to venture a guess, I would say most people listening to us use some sort of daily lectionary, either in the 28 Prayer Book, 2019, 79, or some other daily reading plan. You know, maybe this is just a read through the Bible in a year or two years types things. And I want to commend those. I think that using some sort of systematic lectionary or reading plan is the best way for us to digest Scripture as a whole. And the reason is, well, there's a couple reasons. First, I would say it's to understand the narrative of Scripture. So our Christian lives fit into this grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation, and we need to be able to understand this narrative. And so that way, when it shows up in, say, the liturgy, or a little line of it shows up as an offertory verse or as the communion verse, we understand the larger 
events of the story. We know where we came from. We know where we're going. So I think before you really even start studying an individual book of the Bible, you need to understand the Bible as a whole. And one great resource, I believe it's been mentioned on the podcast before, is Bible Basics for Catholics by John Bergsma. Very easy to read. Very good. I used it as kind of an introductory course at my parish about a year ago. People really enjoyed it to be able to just get the big picture. Because if you just start reading scripture and you get stuck in Leviticus or you get stuck in these weird stories and Chronicles, you end up going, what's the point of all this? Or you read through the prophets, Jeremiah, and you're going, I don't really know what's going on. You got to have that big narrative in your head. So I think reading through a lectionary kind of on a regular basis helps instill this narrative into our minds, because at least I know the 28 lectionary, it's selecting certain passages to give you the overall picture of scripture. So read through a lectionary. Another, another reason for reading through kind of a lectionary reading plan, as opposed to say, just picking Bible study, book studies that you like, is it helps you become familiar with stories and events so that you understand references in later scripture, particularly when the New Testament uses Old Testament background or allusions. And these add a deeper meaning and richer texture to our understanding of Christ and his work. Uh, perhaps a good example of this would be, what is the great benefit of reading something in like Kings about Elijah? Well, he's got some interesting stories. There's a lot of fascinating stuff. But when you realize that Elijah too transformed a little bit of bread into a lot of bread, and it was particularly barley loaves, and it was barley loaves just before the Passover, then when you go to John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, and John gives us one extra detail that is only found in John's account, and that is, it was barley loaves that Jesus fed the 5,000 with. Ah, where does a prophet feed people with barley loaves. So you see this allusion back to Elijah, and then how does that passage end? It ends with the people saying, surely a great prophet has risen among us. You've got to know these Old Testament stories. You've got to just be familiar with them. And so you're not going to have an epiphany every time you read scripture. Sometimes you pick up and you read your lectionary readings on a daily basis, and you're like, yep, okay, that didn't really do much profound work in my soul. But over time it does. And just getting familiar with God's word to where it is in your heart that you can understand it and reference it and see its allusions later in scripture. That's priceless. And then finally, why I always commend a lectionary or a reading plan is it does keep us from picking and choosing our favorite passages. I know people who they just kind of bounce back and forth between Matthew and Romans and maybe they'll read the book of Ruth and a few Psalms. We need the whole counsel of Scripture. And without that, we're just not getting the full picture and narrative of who Jesus is. So, I think that also a way that we incorporate Scripture devotionally into our lives is to blend the line between praying and reading the Bible. Again, the daily office helps with this. Scripture is situated within this liturgy of prayer. So we should be reading Scripture prayerfully and praying with Scripture in the backdrop. 
I think, I don't know, for me, and it seems like for you too, Father West, when I approach Scripture, it, it is so easy to slip into an academic endeavor. Who, what, when, where, why? What's the meaning of this word? And I have to force myself to read it with, the, with eyes towards Jesus and eyes towards application for my soul. And so Scripture should add, uh, we could say, the color, the themes, the dimensions to our prayer lives. We should be praying as the church, both Old Church, Old Covenant Church and New Covenant Church, has prayed and engaged with God. And then we learn about God. How does He expect us to respond to Him in prayer? How will He respond to us through our prayers? Well, the Scripture should serve as that backdrop and foundation for us. And so I find it helpful when I'm reading through the lectionary readings in the morning and in the evening to pray as I'm reading them. Let's say you're reading one of the parables of Jesus and, you know, you need to be like the ten virgins or the five virgins who, you know, have their lamps ready to go. Well, just stop and pray, Lord, may I may I be like them. Help me to be that way. Or you're reading about repentance. You repent right there as you're reading. Make scripture not just you in the text, but God is there present with you. God is there uh, instructing you through his word. The next thing that I would add is to really, really lean into the Psalms. This is the devotional intersection of scripture with our lives. As Father Wesley mentioned earlier, the Psalms make up a huge chunk of our daily reading in in the morning and evening offices in the Book of Common Prayer. And if you're doing something like the breviary or or monastic matins or diurnal, gosh, there's just so much psalmody. You're going through the entire Psalter once a week. And then in the Anglican approach, it's once a month or thereabouts, depending on there's two options of psalm approaches in the Book of Common Prayer. But the point is, is that the Psalms really become the bedrock of our understanding of Scripture and prayer, because they are prayers. And I think the more time you spend in the Psalms, the more you see the value and the benefit of praying them corporately as the church. I would commend a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible. And his base, it's a very short book. I don't know, it's like 50 pages, and they're really short pages. His basic thesis is that Christ is the voice in the Psalms. And so what we do in the Psalms is simply unite our voice as the church to his. And then to read them spiritually in that regard. So you you quoted it at length earlier, Father Wesley, Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Well, who is that man? That man is Jesus Christ. He's the one who's planted by the streams and is like a tree. Well, what's the tree? It's the cross. And this is where God's word comes to us fully. So the Psalms have got to be the mainstay of our scriptural devotional approach. And when you read Psalms or, or anything else, I think you need to focus in on those passages or verses that really pique your interest in that moment. Don't just read through them quickly, but be sensitive to what is standing out to you. You know, scripture is so rich. You can't digest all that you read each day. But there's usually, or at least I find, there's usually one verse or maybe one section of verses that speaks directly to some situation or idea or scenario in your life. I often try to find when I pick up the the prayer book to do the psalm reading, I try and pray and, and seek just one line or verse that's going to be my theme for that day. You know, this is in the morning. 
And normally it's short enough that I can memorize it, right? It's like four or five words. And I try to meditate and repeat that throughout the day. Sometimes I have to get to the end of the psalmody and say, all right, is there anything in there that stood out to me? But nine times out of 10, there's something. And it's different year after year. Or there's something in the first lesson or second lesson that stands out. And that's a way to use scripture devotionally. I think we can get overwhelmed when we're like, oh, I have to read five psalms, an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading, and then do it all again in the evening. Yeah, you're never going to digest it all in one day. Look for those bits where the Lord is slowly molding you and shaping you. One of the uh, one of the things especially true when it comes to the Psalms is that the spiritual reading, reading prayerfully can make sense of things that are otherwise difficult to make sense of. So, for example, the imprecatory Psalms, you know, you sit down and you read the imprecatory Psalms and you think, what is going on here? Um, but if you read them in a in a light that's Christological, that has a kind of prayerful tone to it, you'll, I think you'll start to find, so for example, when, when they're talking about violence uh, towards others, you know, it's not, we don't read those with our enemies in mind, at least as our human enemies, but we might read them, you know, with, with the idea of spiritual warfare in mind, or, you know, with those things that that we're struggling with the the parts of us that are disordered and so we want God to come and conquer those parts you know those that kind of reading um and and so i think that can be kind of helpful um because those are parts of the bible that can often be neglected or we only pay attention to them in a sort of apologetic discussions where we're quote unquote defending the scriptures from you know attack as if the scriptures needed to be defended really um, and so I think this, this helps us just see things in a new light in a way that's very healthy, that's good for us. Um, and so, yeah, th- those, those kind of passages may seem challenging, but they actually might be good practice passages to use if you're, if you're kind of new to the whole exercise, um, because it does require a kind of different imagination, uh, when you approach the text and, and that's one way to develop that. Mm, very true. Now we don't want to negate the discipline of study. Study is, of course, a devotional practice when done towards the end of knowledge and growth in God and when covered in prayer. So I would encourage us all to be part of like as as much as we can take and handle academic study of scripture, understanding what's going on, context, background, history, theology, uh, because it only makes your reading and engagement with the scripture richer. Remember, this this is the first tier of that fourfold ancient understanding of Scripture. It's the foundation. It's necessary. There's there's still more to build upon, but it's good to get that in, uh, the academic study. And then to study also the history of interpretation. There's a lot of great resources out there that will teach you or give to you what different commentators from patristics, uh, medieval, and early modern have said about a given text. What a wonderful resource to know how has this passage been understood and interpreted in the history of the church. Because our interpretation, if you read a passage and you're like, I know what this means, and then you go and see that no one in church history has ever thought this about this passage ever, uh, I'm going to say you might have read it wrong. And we should be trying to bring our interpretations into conformity with the scripture. Now, you can have a fresh uh, application and approach and view but I would say that's 
that's more rare than not. I think um, one one set of books that's helpful, and I don't have the whole set, but I do have a number of the entries in the series is the Ancient Christian Commentary series, which has excerpts from various fathers on a passage. So you buy the Genesis, you know, one through 11 one, and it's got, you know, Genesis one might have comp- sections from Origen, sections from Augustine, sections from whoever else. And uh, I think that's a really helpful resource to kind of get a feel for how the patristics were reading the scriptures. So one that I have that I think is the most interesting is the Joshua one, because you have the kind of violent texts going on. And so what are the, what are the fathers doing? And different fathers do different things with it. You know, Origen takes a pretty much allegorical reading um, in a way that maybe bypasses the literal too much. Um, and so it, anyways, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting set that can help you practice because that's really the best way to learn, right? Is to mimic what others are or were doing. And so the fathers can be our teachers in that regard. And I think that's a, I think that's a very valuable set. So I would encourage you to check that series out. Yeah, definitely. Another tool that I feel like we are, we use a lot as children or with our children, especially if you were raised in the church. Oh my gosh, I was raised in Awanas. And so it was all about memorizing the Bible, memorizing the Bible. But I feel like we get older and because memorization gets a bit harder, we forget doing it or we don't forget. We just don't do it at all. But I would really encourage us to make memorization of scripture kind of a regular discipline. Pick a verse that stands out to you, pick a passage and start working to memorize it. I think this goes in line with what the psalmist says about hiding the word of God in our heart. That way, during those difficult moments of life or the joyful moments of life, we pull from the resources of the treasures of scripture hidden within us that we can meditate upon them day and night. So make memorization a part of your a part of your uh, d- discipline when it comes to Holy Scripture. Dr. Borsma has a great article. I think it was originally written in First Things. Um, but it's called Memorization and Repentance, and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, and it, it goes with one of my favorite um, medieval writers, who is uh, who is Hugh of St. Victor. And it talks about the idea of memorization and its importance. You know, um, we become what it is that we memorize. And so it's important then for us to memorize the scriptures because it reshapes us and it reforms us uh, into Christ, but we're united to him, we're taking in the scriptures, his word, and we become like him. Um, so anyways, we'll put that in the show notes and you can read it because it's a great article. And then as mentioned earlier, scripture is a communal book. It's meant to be interpreted, digested, processed in community. And so I think it needs to have an aspect in our lives of sharing and discussing. I find the best way to digest scripture is to discuss it with those around me. This can be, you know, in kind of a traditional Bible study setting where we all read a passage, we all think about it, we all come together and discuss. Or it can be on the cuff with your spouse or with a friend. Or, and and I'm not particularly into this, but many gravitate towards like a journaling approach. They journal their prayers and their thoughts and they process scripture and what it is speaking to them in that way. I think there's a lot of avenues for us to be communal and and uh, and to bring our scripture reading into the, the the church at large. So that way, when we do gather for the mass, we are coming at it with 
kind of a group interpretation already. And this is why I think priest, if you're not doing like Bible studies, like what's often called Lectio Continuum, which is verse by verse Bible study, either like on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or something. I know during COVID things are difficult, but I think that's really important. The church needs to be processing scripture bit by bit. I'm not convinced that that's always the best approach for a Sunday morning, but it definitely is a part of the the devotional life of the church. And then finally, I would say is you need to do the work of connecting your readings on a regular basis with Christology. What does this passage say about Jesus? How does it point to Jesus? How does it participate in Jesus? And often, actually, I find doing that with the Gospels can be harder than with the Old Testament because sometimes Jesus says and does some things. I'm like, I have no idea why you would do this and what this has to do with your work and mission. But wrestle with it, struggle with it. And then also sacramentology. I think we can connect almost every passage of Scripture back to the sacraments because the sacraments are the narrative of Scripture for us. And so they are meant to be read with each other because this is the church's book. This is how the church would have us read the Bible. And I think this is when it comes alive for us. So I think that those are just some thoughts and recommendations we have for reading Scripture devotionally, privately. The one that we've left out is the most ancient and common practice, I think, of devotional reading of Scripture is Lectio Divina. And you'll have to listen to our next episode with Dr. Hans Borsma as he closes out this season on Anglo-Catholic piety and devotion, where he will be bringing to us a great discussion of Lectio Divina, what is it, and how do we do it, and why is it so life-giving in in our personal lives, and if you do group Lectio Divina, which is very common. All right, well, I think we are now ready for everyone's favorite portion of the Sacramentalist podcast this season— And that is Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. Father Creighton, I'm sure you have something great for us today. Welcome to another installment of Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. I'm your host, Father Creighton, and today we are going to be talking about study Bibles and biblical translation. This week's Anglo-Catholic Corner is going to be relatively short. There are so many biblical translations and so many study Bibles out there, uh, you could almost get lost in a sea of Bibles. But I want to focus on a few that I think are interesting and that are helpful and that are commonly used by uh, Roman Catholics, Anglo-Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and others. To start with, let's sort of give a list of particular translations uh, that I think a lot of people will run into uh, and, and have used. So we'll start with the authorized 1611 King James Version. The King James Version of Scripture is probably the best known translation in the world, but it's not always the easiest translation to use. It can be very difficult, it can be intimidating, and uh, some of the uh, syntax and the sentence structure and word choice, it can be very, very difficult to sort of penetrate, especially when you're looking at things like the Pauline epistles. 
but it is a beautiful uh, translation to use in the liturgy, which uh, is still done by a lot of Anglo-Catholics and a, a lot of people from the prayer book tradition as a whole. But I want to also mention the NKJV, uh, the RSV, and the NRSV. Now, the NKJV is a updated version of the King James with an attempt to kind of round out some of those hard edges and make it a little bit more understandable. Again, the RSV, which I uh, personally like to use the most, the RSV is a translation which attempts to uh, bring the best in terms of modern scholarship and uh, expertise and translation into the text, but also tries to retain a sense of transcendence and sacredness in the text itself. It's not as hieratic or um, sacral as Elizabethan language tends to be, but it's still not vernacular. It still retains that sense of otherness and uh, formality in the text. The updated version of the RSV is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. In some ways, this translation is okay. Um, it's sort of a mixed bag. Um, if you are concerned with particular uh, pronoun usage, the NRSV does attempt to uh, de-gender some pronouns. It makes some particular choices in interpretation that uh, some people might find objectionable. It's used mostly uh, in the academy nowadays. It's, it's one of the kind of go-to texts in modern theology and biblical studies. Um, but it is out there and people do run into it. I would say these are kind of the, the most uh, likely translations that people have run into um, in the Anglo-Catholic world. There is the, uh, the New American Bible, which is a, which is a Roman Catholic translation, um, but I think a lot of people are familiar with, with the ones we've listed. In terms of study Bibles or Bibles with commentaries, I would... Uh, Put together, I, I put together a little list, and, and we can talk about them briefly. Uh, it's the Jerusalem Bible, or the New Jerusalem Bible, the Navarre Study Bible, the Word on Fire Bible, the New Oxford Annotated Bible, and the Orthodox Study Bible. Now, for the most part, all of these are going to provide articles and commentaries from a variety of sources, uh, modern scholarship, modern experts, church fathers, the doctors of the church, patristic sources, um, and uh, particular patristic commentaries, things like that. They all present a very s a sacramental view of the world. Um, the New Oxford Annotated Bible is probably the most ecumenical of the options uh, listed. Uh, but there are there are Anglican and Roman Catholic, and I believe is e even some Eastern Orthodox uh, contributions in the in the articles and notes. Um, so you get a, a a very traditional reading of the particular text in question. But I would I would tend to say when it comes to study Bibles to err on the side of the received tradition of the Church 
So a commentary with as much uh, patristic and medieval and modern Catholic thought, uh, the better. The ones that I use the most are going to be the New Oxford Annotated Bible with the RSV translation. Uh, I go to that a lot. The Jerusalem Bible and the New Jerusalem Bible, I do go to quite a bit. Um, I, the newest uh, option on the list is the Word on Fire Bible that's uh, produced by Bishop Barron, uh, who runs a ministry called Word on Fire, uh, where he produces catechetical videos, and they've just produced a, uh, a study Bible of their own. So I'm still kind of wading my way through it, but so far I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's almost a one-to-one uh, scriptural text and commentary, so you get a lot of, of information uh, to help you in your study of scripture. At the end of the day, we want to study scripture, we want to approach scripture, we want to use translations which are in keeping with the tradition of the church, in keeping with the uh, patristic uh, and 2,000-year and living tradition uh, of God's church. And we want, to, we want to study within that great stream of thought. We want to be informed uh, by the great saints and doctors of the church. We want to read scripture uh, through their eyes and, and through the eyes of the church as she has read scripture and interpreted it and prayed it and lived with it. And I think that's the most important part. So I would recommend these particular study Bibles to you, and I think they can be very helpful. And I hope that everybody has a very blessed Advent and Christmas season. And remember, more lace, more grace. Great, Father Creighton. Thank you for that. Now we can move on to what's been demoted to second place in the podcast episode, and that is what we're into today. Father Wesley, what are you into? Okay, so I know in the past we've talked about how we're both into fountain pens. Well, when we moved to Maryland, I discovered that about 15 to 20 minutes away from my house is a store called Pen Boutique. And it is a fountain pen store. Well, the problem was I was so busy the first few months that we were here that I never really got around to going. And then COVID happened and the store shut down. They have a pretty big online presence and you can order stuff from them. But it's not the same as actually going to the, you know, and getting to look at the pins up close and everything like that. So the other day I finally drove to Columbia, Maryland, about 15 minutes from our house and was able to go into the store and actually look around and buy journals and pins and everything like that. So that's what I'm into, supporting local businesses that sell fountain pens. Wonderful. I know that many of you out there are also pen enthusiasts with us, and then others like my wife greatly enjoy making fun of us for caring so much about fine writing utensil. You know, I said on the podcast a few months ago when we found out that Liz was pregnant, that we were having a baby, but now we know that she is indeed a girl, and she is due April 1st, which is Monday, Thursday, 2021, so it's going to be the busiest time in a priest's year, so you can pray for us that hopefully she'll come a little early, but if she does come a little late, that's all right, because we have chosen a name for her. Her name is Anastasia 
which means resurrection. And so if she comes on Easter Day, as busy and hectic as that might be, it would be fitting for the years of her life. If she waits 22 more days, then she could have the same birthday as me. If she waits 22 more days, then you'll have to reckon with Liz <laughs> and a three-week-late baby. So Yes, yes. Our son, our first son, was two weeks late, and that was Yes, that so, was was, so was our first yeah. son. Two weeks late was a miserable experience for Liz. So we are hoping and praying that this one will come early, but... It's all in the Lord's timing. According to the scan, everyone's healthy and happy, so we are ready for little Anastasia in due time. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that brings this episode to a close. Thank you all so much for joining us for this season of The Sacramentalists, where we looked into Anglo-Catholic devotion and piety. I'm sure that there were many things that could have been said that weren't, and many things that were said that shouldn't have been said or could have been said better. But thank you for sticking with us. And we are excited for the next episode, final bonus episode with Dr. Hans Borsma. And you will hear from us a little bit before next season. And that is we are going to continue our tradition of a very merry Anglo-Catholic Christmas special that'll be coming out near to Christmas. And then we will be back in February, full swing, for a deep, deep dive into Catholic moral teaching. So if you like what we're doing, please help other people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, and share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation with us about this episode or any others, follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. And don't forget, you can support us over at Patreon for $5 a month. Please consider joining the great communion of Patreon saints. And then in the interim, or at any time, please email us with your feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. Well, we thought that it would be a fitting conclusion to not only this episode, but for this season to end with the Litany of the Church, which is found on page 292 of the St. Augustine's Prayer Book. The scriptures are the, the book of the church. It also makes sense that in a season about piety and devotion as Anglo-Catholics that we would understand and center our focus on the church, for that is the arena in which our salvation is worked out, the sacraments are administered, and the holy scriptures are proclaimed to us for us and for our salvation. And so the litany of the church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. O God, the Father of heaven, have mercy upon us. O God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us. O God, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, have mercy upon us. O Holy Trinity, one God, have mercy upon us. O God, Eternal Father, have who didst choose the church of thine elect before the foundation of the world, have mercy upon us. O God, who on the fall of man didst promise redemption through thine only begotten Son, have mercy upon us. O God, who ledest thy people like sheep by the hand of Moses and Aaron, have mercy upon us. O God, who in the fullness of time didst send thy Son to be the anointed prophet, priest, and king of thy people, Israel, have mercy upon us. O God, who by the cross didst bring both Jew and Gentile into thy one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
have mercy upon us. O Jesus, who has built thy church on the foundation of thy holy apostles and prophets, have mercy upon us. O Jesus, calling thy church thy bride, have mercy upon us. O Jesus, who in the last great manifestation of thyself wilt come to deliver thy church, have mercy upon us. O Jesus, who has comforted us with the promised glory of the church triumphant, have mercy upon us. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, O Lord Jesus, that as thou hast promised to avenge thine own elect, thou wilt hear us when we call upon thee. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest pour down plenteously the Holy Ghost upon thy church. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest endue the clergy with the spirit of power and love. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest vouchsafe unto all thy people a right apprehension of Christian truth. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest give unto all Christians a right understanding of the grace of the apostolic ministry and of the blessed efficacy of thy sacraments. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest bring back all separatists to the one communion of thy holy church. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest vouchsafe unto her the long-desired restoration of her godly discipline. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest richly bless the divided portions of Catholic Christendom and remove all hindrance to a perfect reunion. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, that thou wouldest speedily bring this great nation to the knowledge and love of thy truth. We sinners beseech thee to hear us, good Lord, Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, spare us, O Lord. Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, hear us, O Lord. Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who in Christ hast manifest forth thy glory unto all nations, preserve that which thy mercy hath wrought, and grant that thy church being spread throughout the world may preserve with steadfast faith in the confession of thy name, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.